Welcome to the Tabernacle. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I want to say hello to all my friends in Manistee. I wish I was there with you this weekend. This will have to do. Hello to Manistee County Jail and everybody else who's tuning in online, whether you are a longtime believer, um, but you're tuned into this podcast or vodcast or however you're listening, and you're just looking for some answers, you're looking to find out a little bit more about God, uh, I just want to say you're in the right place, and I think this message is going to have something for you. I also want to say hello to Buckley, our uh, mothership where we broadcast from, our secret underground bunker here in flyover country. Uh, thanks for coming out and being with us. Um, I was, uh, this is, we're coming into fall here, I usually go to this, my wife calls it my nesting time where I start going around the house and I'm cleaning everything up and, uh, you know, through the summer of having kids running all around, there's a lot of stuff out. And uh, this is a time of year where I, I'll pick things up and I'll have to make a decision if, if I'm going to keep it or throw it away. And as I was doing that, I was thinking about my, my grandpa Jones, passed away a couple years ago. Uh, he grew up in the Great Depression. Um, by the time he was in his teens, both his parents were dead. He inherited a farm to himself and uh, he finished the eighth grade and that was as far as he got with his education. But when he grew up in those circumstances, uh, and probably maybe even some of you listening or, or that are here with us, you can relate to this. When you grow up fairly poor, objects have a certain amount of worth to them. And my grandpa Jones, you could tell by how he kept his farm that he held ob- objects in pretty high regard. He didn't throw a lot of things away. And I can remember at one point working on the tractor with him and one of the hydraulic fittings had blown. And my first instinct was, well, we're just going to run up to tractor supply or something like that. It's probably an 8 or $10 fitting. My grandpa said, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure I got one of those around here somewhere. And he starts digging through stuff, and lo and behold, he had an old broken hydraulic hose, but on the end of it, and I don't know how he kept that categorized in his brain, where that was, was the fitting he needed. See, my grandpa really, he, uh, he knew that objects were meant to be used. Now, in today's society, um, you know, we're, we live in a different culture, and where things are very readily available. And um, you know, we can have things shipped to our doorstep. And there's actually this movement of minimalism where, uh, you know, the, the, the concept is that you're going to hold something in your hand and decide, does this bring me joy or not? And if it does not, then it needs to go away. And, uh, you know, that's one line of thinking. But really, all in all, the, the, the whole concept of, of things we have around us, they're just simply objects to be used. And that's okay, whether you fall on the minimalist side or you grew up in the Great Depression and you still have old hydraulic fittings from 1947. God bless you. That's not what the sermon's about today. But what we're looking at is when we take that concept of things that are to be used and we transfer that to people. When we start looking at people as things to be used or where we remove the, the person from the person that's in front of us. Or even more so when we do that to God and we start treating God as something to be used. We start treating God like an object. So where we've been in 1 Samuel here is we're we're just taking this book of the Bible step by step. We've seen the nation of Israel who, as it says, everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Whatever feels good, whatever, whatever seems good, there doesn't seem to be any steady moral compass anywhere. And there's two leaders, Hophni and Phinehas, which we heard about a couple weeks ago. If you weren't with us, I'd encourage you to go back through the archives. You can still get all those messages. But these two leaders, they really, 
They used people like objects. They were sleeping with the women that worked at the church. They, uh, when people would bring their offerings, they were reaching their hand in and taking the best for themselves first. They really saw people as just objects to be used. They had re- dehumanized people, and especially in today's, like where we are right now in this political climate, when we're talking about social justice, when I don't know if I've ever seen this country so tense, whether it's fueled by the COVID situation or just, just everything that's going on right now, I see this happening all around, I think we all do, where people are being dehumanized in one way, shape, form, or another. It happens on our social media because when I can't see your face, it's a lot easier for me to be a little bit more harsh with my words. And even more so, we can just like an object where I can put it away and in case I need it later, how easy for is, is it how easy for I can't even speak tonight. How easy it is for us to simply unfollow somebody on social media. And even sends a little message on there, oh, we're not gonna let them know you didn't not following them. So I've got my 600 friends, but I really only want to hear from 25 of them. The rest are put away in case I ever need them again, right? And that can translate to how we approach God. So we're going to see some pretty harsh stuff happen in this chapter. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now, there is a young man who's growing up amidst all this chaos in Israel, and his name's Samuel. The, the namesake of this book of the Bible, the namesake of this series. And he's observing everything that's happened. And last week we heard the Lord gave Samuel a prophecy saying, I'm going to remove these really bad spiritual leaders from your midst because I've got some work I'm going to do and they've been sinning against me and this is how it's going to happen. And he gave a prophecy and he gave it to Eli. He gave it to Samuel and Eli, that the sign was going to be both Hophni and Phinehas, these jack wagons that were using people, they were going to die on the same day. So let's get right into it. Verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? 
These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, this is Eli speaking, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. The Bible just doesn't sugarcoat it, does it? He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So this is a really, this is kind of a downer book of the Bible, or chapter of this series as we're looking at this. And as we're starting right off, we see, I don't want you to get lost in too many of the details here, but we see they're simply Israel's up battling an enemy nation who they were supposed to drive out of this promised land years ago anyway. But they're still fighting the same battle. Maybe you could relate to that. Maybe that you've got a battle in your life that maybe with addiction or something like that that you've been fighting over and over and you just can't seem to get on top of. We see when they are first defeated, they ask the question, why have we been defeated but interesting, through this entire passage, we don't see God speak. They don't even inquire of the Lord there. They're just asking each other, hey, what's going on? We're the Israelites. We're a pretty big deal. We're God's people. We're supposed to be able to wipe these guys out. Then they make a little bit of a, well, not a little bit. They make a pretty big mistake here. They don't ask God. They don't say, Lord, please tell us, have we sinned? What's going on here? They go to Shiloh and they grab the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you're, maybe you saw Indiana Jones, that was actually, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that was actually a pretty accurate picture of what the Ark looked like. And this was simply, uh, it was kept in the tent of meeting. 
And on the top, that was where God would speak to them from. But God had given strict orders when they had entered the promised land that he would choose where that was going to be, where they were going to set up that tent of meeting. It wasn't something that you could just go grab like a good luck charm, go, hey, let's just go haul it over here. But they were treating it like an object, like a good luck charm. So they go and they grab the ark from Shiloh, which, number one, even when we look at the, the verbiage of how they, how they t- carried it, it was supposed to be carried with poles, but it's interesting. I was doing a little word study this week, geeking out on that. The Hebrew word, they basically just threw it on a cart, which was, that was against God's instructions anyway. So we see a people who have been emboldened because they've got this presence of God with them, so to speak. But they've started to treat God like a lucky rabbit's foot. Like just something they can drag along. They bring it in there. They bring it to the battle. And it's interesting, the Philistines, people who aren't followers of God, aren't, aren't, they, they, they're worshiping other gods. They knew who this God was, the God of Israel. They knew, they had heard the stories of what had happened, how this God had rescued these Israelites. They had a better rememberer about all of this than the Israelites themselves. Now, I'm not, it would be speculation to decide if, if that led into why Israel was defeated. But it's interesting, though, that the Philistines are the ones that recognize this. But they take heart and they fight. But God's got a different plan, and he had foretold that this was going to happen. The prophecy had been given that Hophni and Phinehas, these two guys that were stealing from the church, that were sleeping around, that they were going to die on the same day. And God seems to have chosen this moment that this was going to be the battle that these two men died in. And they do. They pass away. The news gets back to Eli, Hophni and Phinehas' father. And he ends up dying on the same day, whether from shock or whatever. No, he fell over because he was too heavy and he died. That'll happen. But then we see this little, it's almost something we could go right past we weren't careful. See, Phineas had a wife, and she was pregnant. Let me say that again. Phineas, who was sleeping around, had a wife who was pregnant. I wonder what she felt like. I wonder if she felt like an object being used. Maybe you've been in a relationship like that. Or you've been cheated on. And we see the saddest thing here at the end as she's giving birth. The glory has departed from Israel. You know, it's a sad thing when we're left with no God, with no hope. And there's a big cry in the world right now that. God's just a big meanie, that God's just trying to destroy all our fun, that he's got all these rules we need to follow. But I would say, when you're facing death, when you're facing cancer, when you're facing whatever you're facing right now, if there's nothing beyond what we have around us right now, if there is no God, if God's glory is left, that's a desperate place to be in. That's a tremendous, desperate place to be in. 
So have you been at a point where you started to look at people as objects? Or maybe you started to look at God as an object? Or maybe you're just checking out this concept of God and you're trying to figure out, okay, is God the ark? Is God a cross necklace? Is God, do I need a priest with robes? Do I need to go to a big cathedral? Do I need to attend church a certain number of times? What do I need to do? What is this? What is God? How do I approach him? Well, the beautiful thing is it's pretty simple, actually. But we need to know this. There are no shortcuts for how we approach God. There are no shortcuts for how we get to come before God. And that's actually probably the the biggest thing that we can see right here. When we start to treat God as an object, when we start treating him as, a, as a, just a token and that we're going to go about living our lives however we want, with no regard for him, God has a choice to not answer. There are no shortcuts before we get to, uh, for how we come before God. Uh, in Fight Club this week, we were going through the book of John again, and it's, it's just interesting. You get a group of guys together, and it doesn't seem to matter how many times we, you read through a, a book like the book of John, one of the Gospels, one of the four accounts of Jesus' life here on earth. It, doesn't, it just something new comes out every time, and we were just looking at this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus has given Nicodemus the instructions, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was a man who had come with questions. He was a man who had come searching. He was a man coming to learn more about God. So if that's what you're, why you're listening or that's why you're tuning in, if that's why you showed up this week, good job. Good job being a Nicodemus. And God is faithful to that questioning. God can handle those questions that you have. Jesus tells him, you must be born again. You have to receive a new spirit. When we come before God, it's just as simple as that. And it's just choosing to acknowledge that he is God and we are not. It's also choosing to acknowledge that he's not just an object. He's something more than that. In uh, Micah chapter 6, this is another Old Testament prophet who had had questions given him about what does the Lord require for me to come before him. Verse 6, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? There's almost a sarcastic tone of, what do you need from me, God? And I love the answer. Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? To do justice. To realize that we have sinned against God. To realize that there are people in the world that are being oppressed. And that we should be advocates for that. To love kindness. To not use people. 
We have a saying here at the tabernacle, love God, love people, make disciples. And then the finally there, to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. So that we don't just grab him like a good luck charm when things are going well or even when things get tight. Where we're not just going about our lives however we want, whatever is good in our eyes, but then we come before him when things get tough. We can do that, but there's this thing called repentance. And it's a churchy word, but it's just simply where we have to have an honest change of mind about what we've been doing in our lives and what's got us into the situation that we might be in. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he says, he's talking about building our house on the rock. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall. Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So what rains and winds do you have beating on your house right now? And have you built your house on the rock? See, the difference between the two men, both of the men in that, that parable, they had, heard, they had heard the commandments of God. They knew Jesus' instructions. They, they knew what to do. The difference about the man who chose not to was that was the building of the house on the sand. It's interesting. It doesn't say uh, the man who went out and figured out everything God had for me to do, the man who had his theology all straightened out, the man who had a Bible degree. It doesn't say that. It just says the man who's heard my words and does what I say and does them, you've built your house on the rock. See, I don't know about you, but God seems to show me one thing at a time. Every time, like I said, I'm sitting in Fight Club, I'm sitting in Fight Club for a long time, and when I sit in there, I still, every, every time I do, I'm learning something new. And it's so awesome that he's, just, he's got patience with me, and he's going to show me one thing at a time. Those are the things I'm responsible for, what God has shown me. And it's, it's, it's a walk. This is called being, becoming sanctified. There's another churchy word. can confuse, confuse us and baffle us, but that's all it is. God's going to show you something, And are you going to do what he says? If you're doing that, you're building your house on the rock. When those storms come, well, that's just it. There are no shortcuts. But if if you've been here for a while, and you've been in here, and God's been showing you things, but you're still deciding, hey, I'm going to go get some on the side. Sorry, that just went a little bit bar language there. But if that's where you're at, Man, you've got your house built on the sand. It, things are not going to go well. If you're stealing from your boss, even though you know that's wrong, church leaders, if you're stealing from the church that you're in, man, God, from here, I'm just going to speak to church leaders right now. God has something for us who don't handle his people and the resources that he's provided well. He has a way of removing those people. And I pray if I'm ever in a situation where I'm 
if I'm stepping in it like that, either you guys drag me out of here or God's going to drag me out of here. One of the two. So what happens though when maybe we know what we're supposed to do and we have built our house on the rock but the storm is still beating on it. Loss of a loved one. Man, I'm getting tired of people losing kids. I'm getting tired of people who I know are faithful who've got cancer and they're praying and they're just not seeing it seeing those prayers answered at least not in the way that they would like to see them answered what about them because we got to be careful when we look at this we got to understand with Hophni and Phineas here this is not prescriptive that means if you do these things it doesn't mean God is going to kill you it doesn't mean that's what what God is all about God had a different purpose in mind here Why does God let that stuff happen? The addiction, the abuse, all of that stuff that we wrestle with while we're here on earth. Especially when we have, <laughs> we've got verses like Jeremiah 29, 29 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. What do we do with that? See, the old way of looking at things, the way that the Jews looked at devastation, sickness, disease, all that stuff, they looked at that, that there was obviously somebody that had sinned. And what I love about it is when Jesus came, he was asked about this. There was a man born blind. And the people around this man were going, hey, so was it his sin? Was it his mom and dad? Like, somebody obviously screwed up here. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been born blind. And Jesus set it straight in such a beautiful way. He said, no, this man was born blind so that the glory of God could be revealed. I'm going to perform a miracle. I'm going to do something that you can't imagine here. And it's so that you know how powerful God is. And I hate saying this if you're somebody who's lost a loved one recently, but it is the truth is that his plan is bigger than us. His plan is bigger than us. And God does seem to have a way. It takes time, sometimes. But he does seem to have a way of showing his glory even in the worst of circumstances. See, God is not an object. God is someone who cares. And God is... Someone who wants to offer comfort for those of us that have been afflicted. See, God experienced all of the things that we experience here on earth. And this is where we got to make a really close connection, especially for so, some of us that maybe are new to church. When we talk about the God of the Old Testament, that's the same God as the God of the New Testament. And when we talk about the God of the New Testament... We have to look at Jesus because Jesus told his disciples, and he's telling us when they were asked, hey, show us the Father, this, this God in heaven that, that we hear about, that we want to worship, that we've been following for thousands of years, that, 
that was enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant, who showed himself in a pillar of fire. Can you show us what he looks like? And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So here we have Jesus, a man who, when his friend Lazarus died, he went and he wept. He was sad. Jesus was a man who had emotion. We saw Jesus get angry. We see the God of the Old Testament get angry. We see the God of the Old Testament rejoice in song. See, this is, if there's nothing that we get out of, nothing more than we get out of this this weekend, if you're just checking out God, if you're trying to get some answers to this, this is what separates the God of the Bible, I think, from every other God. Is this, that God is a person, not an object. God is a person, not an object. You got a cross necklace? That's awesome. If it opens up some conversations, you get to talk about your faith, that's beautiful. God is not confined to this building. You don't have to come here to meet with him, though. And that's the beauty of this, this concept. God is a person, not an object. He's not, he can't be contained, though. His Holy Spirit is available to us. And God gave us this beautiful picture of this man, Jesus, who walked with people, who experienced everything that we experienced. He experienced loss. It's been written, and this is one of my favorite quotes, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit, and I haven't been able to figure out exactly who originally said it, whether it was a Dalai Lama, whether it was Gandhi, whether it was somebody else. I don't know. That people were created to be loved, and objects were created to be used. But we see so much chaos in the world because we decide to use people and love objects. And this is where when we start to dehumanize people around us. Again, in this, what's going on in the world all around us right now where there's you know, talks of social justice and rights equality. Is God about that? Yeah, I think so. Is God a God of, that's a God of about people? Yeah, he's a God that's about people. And not people as objects, but people as persons. People as beings with souls. Not meant to be traded. Not meant to be sex trafficked. Not meant to be abused. And the beautiful thing is there's going to be a day coming when he's going to take care of all that. He's going to set it right. The more and more I just look at this man Jesus, this God man Jesus, he really did experience it all. We talk about people being dehumanized, where their rights and their personhood is removed from them and they're just removed. Look at Jesus on the cross. How much more dehumanizing can you get than nailing somebody to a chunk of wood and standing them up like a Christmas tree ornament, waiting for them to die? Jesus knows what it's like to be dehumanized. One of my favorite stories is just simply Jesus with this woman at a well in John chapter 4. 
the Samaritan woman who, by all social standards at that time, he had every, well, he could have. I wouldn't say he had every right, but nobody would have turned or thought another thing about it if he would have simply used her, if he would have walked right by her and not said anything to her. But he sits down and he intentionally gets into a conversation with her, which I don't think we really fully understand what that's like. For somebody who's a diehard Christian, think of the worst offense, the worst offender that you can put in your, in your head. That's really what she was in that society. And Jesus just sits down with her and has a conversation almost as equals, and he's thirsty. <laughs> Jesus got thirsty. Ask her for a drink. And this is a woman who had been passed around from husband to husband to husband to husband. She's on number five. And Jesus doesn't condemn her. He just says, yeah, I know. You've been an object, haven't you? And at some point, this woman realizes who she's talking with. She's speaking with the God of the universe. That's the personal Jesus. That's the personal God that we come before. That's the personal God we get to have a relationship with. So when we talk about having a relationship with God, that's the picture. The one who's willing to sit down with you. He might not going to be fixing everything that's going on in your life, but he's going to walk with you. He'll hold your hand through it. So the question for us, maybe coming out of this message today, is this. And I'm sorry this is a little heavy. Sometimes we need a little kick in the seat, right? Somebody, come on, somebody's got to laugh. (laughs) But the question is really this. Where are you cutting corners in your life? And I'm not talking about checking all the boxes. I'm talking about cutting corners with how you see people. If I was to look at your Facebook page and the vulgar display of power that you've vomited out on there, would that be, would I get a picture or would somebody get a picture of somebody who loves people well? When you drive by a yard sign right now and you see a sign from another political party, have you already painted a picture of who that person is in your head? Our president. First lady, our governor, our governor's husband. What goes through your mind when you hear those names? I remember seeing some of the most vicious things written about Michelle Obama. She's just a woman. You might not agree with her politics, you might not agree with some of the things she did. Man, if any somebody ever wrote something about my wife, I'd be tracking them like that. I'd be tracking them down. When we start dehumanizing people, starting treating people like objects, it's a short step before we're treating God like an object. Or maybe, maybe you're like Phineas's wife. Maybe you're a student in school. You're getting picked on. Jesus knew what it was like to be picked on. 
Maybe you're somebody who's been the victim of the affair. Jesus knows. God knows what it's like to be cheated on. But whatever, however we come before him, whether we're the victim, whether we're the victimizer, or maybe we've been using God for our own prosperity and purposes, we get to always start over just by simply repenting and, God, I'm sorry. And it's important that we look as at God as a person. So I'm going to pray for us. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you that you're a personal God. This is a heavy message, Lord. But it's a call out for us because it's so easy for us to start to treat you like just a good luck charm where we go about living our lives and we just ignore the things you show us The scripture says, we quench your Holy Spirit. We stick our fingers in our ears. Lord, forgive us for abusing you in that manner. Help us to see you in a new light as as a person with feelings, with emotions, that knows what it is to love, that knows what it is to be rejected. May this message this week, may... May your word give us a fresh picture of what it is to be in a relationship with you, Lord. If we have sin in our life right now where we've been cutting corners, Lord, I just help us all to just confess that to you quietly in these next few moments in our hearts. Jesus, you're amazing. Thank you for coming and putting on skin when you didn't have to and walking through all the suffering and all the anguish so that we could see that, yeah, God can relate to us. He's not a far off distant God. He's a God that enters into our messes. We love you, Jesus. Amen.